people of God who had become believers in Jesus Christ still went to the temple, still believed themselves to be part of the Jewish traditions. They still observed all of the feasts. They were still very much Jewish, with one exception. They understood that Jesus Christ died for their sins. They understood that he was the fulfillment of the law. They understood that, that the temple was temporary. And remembering that Jesus had actually told them that the temple would be destroyed somewhere in the near future, perhaps they realized that we've got to do all we can here in the city of Jerusalem to convince all of the Jews that come to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple. And so they began their ministry there and they were founding a church that was growing at a phenomenal rate. Miracles were being done. Signs and wonders. It wasn't without problems. Although they started well with the idea that perhaps they could share each other's resources, knowing that there was persecution by the leaders of the Jewish people, the religious leaders of the day, especially the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees who didn't believe in miracles, didn't believe in much of anything except for a little interpretation of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, written by Moses. But they accepted nothing with regard to angelic beings, with regard to the prophets. They were kind of lining themselves up for a great fall. And they did fall. But in their falling they gave the church a great deal of trouble. And we've seen that in the past few weeks studying through the book of Acts so far, that as they were teaching in the temple, the things that they were saying and doing were an offense to the Sadducees. And they convinced themselves that they needed to put a stop to this thing before it went too far. Until, remember last time, we saw Gamaliel, one of the Pharisees, not a Sadducee, but a Pharisee, stood up among the people in the Sanhedrin and said, listen, if this thing is from God, you cannot stop it. He was right. They could not stop it. But they tried. So the persecution originally came from outside. There are other problems that started to manifest themselves from within. And we saw in our reading of chapter 5 that Ananias and Sapphira were a bit of a problem for the church because they introduced something of a level of hypocrisy that God would not accept at the beginning of this great ministry that he was putting together. And so God chose to do something very, very severe. I don't believe that anyone could argue that Ananias and Sapphira were not believers. I believe sincerely that they were. But nonetheless, they lied to the Holy Spirit, to God, and God punished them by taking their lives. That was a shock to the early church. It would have been a shock to any of us if something like that would have happened here. I think that there would be a real adjustment in many of our lives. But that was the case. There was an adjustment. There was fear that entered in to this worship that was taking place on a daily basis. They realized that God was serious about this. And as a result, the church continued to grow. So even though there was a problem in the church, it affected the church in a positive way. So it is with what we are going to be reading here today. It seems that since the church was growing so quickly, that 
they were taking a lot of Jews into the fellowship. Some, perhaps some people have estimated that by the time of this story that is given to us in chapter 6, over 20,000 Jews had come to the Lord. And we're going to find out that many of those who came to the Lord were of the Levitical line, priests who served in Jerusalem. Many of them were coming to the Lord as well. So there was an impact even within the larger circle of Jewry that stood against the Christians originally. However, there's an internal struggle that's going on that manifests itself in a very important way, and God uses this, I believe, in a very wonderful way to begin to help the church to become organized in its taking care of the business of the church. You know, that's still an important aspect of church ministry. You know, as a pastor, I and the elders that are here with me are devoted to the spiritual aspect of the ministry. We pray for the the body and we pray for the moving of the Holy Spirit. We pray for the effectiveness of the Word of God. And we are very concerned about those spiritual aspects of the ministry. But there's also a physical aspect of the ministry that must be dealt with, taken care of, and things that happen, the taking care of a building like this. It requires a good deal of effort. And it requires individuals who would be able to step up to the task that we need things done and they will be willing then to participate in the doing of those things. That is physical ministry that should be going on within the church. And many churches, unfortunately, depend on the pastor and his staff to take care of all of these things. But frankly, and this reading that we'll be looking at today focuses on this very fact that it's not about me and the elders and the deacons in the church doing it all. It's about all of us participating in this arrangement of business that needs to be dealt with within the church body. So having said that, let's look at chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, where Luke tells us these things. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, here's a problem. These are all Jews or proselytes into Jewry, and I'll mention more about that a little bit later on. But these were faithful Jewish followers, now followers of Christ, who were gathering together on a regular basis. And again, remember, they had sold all their goods and brought the money that they earned from the sale of those properties into the fellowship so that the the leaders of the church could distribute among all the people as the needs were presented to them. It was a very, very good system that they initially started out with. It couldn't last forever because ultimately they ran out of money and they spread so thin because of such great growth that it wasn't maintainable. But in this particular time... All of the Jews in Jerusalem who were identifying with the Christian faith, and they didn't call themselves Christians, they were a sect of Jewry, but they still were identifying with the risen Savior, they were participating in all of this activity. Now, some of them, referred to here as Hellenists, in the King James it just simply translates to Greeks, but the Hellenists were just simply those who spoke the Greek language as their primary language. 
That word Hellenistic is a word that is probably from the time of Alexander the Great on all the way through to Jesus' day, a reference to those who spoke the Greek language as their primary language. Now, those of the Jews who did speak the Greek language as their primary language were from the outside. They were from areas like uh, West Eastern Turkey, the territory of Asia known in that day. They were from Cilicia. They were from the northern area of Africa, Egypt and Libya today. They were from all over the known world outside of Israel. But they had come to Jerusalem and many of them stayed in Jerusalem and attempted to remain there. And there was a large number of them who were widows. Widows because of whatever circumstances, whether it was war or old age, their husband had passed away. But that was a problem for in that day that needed to be addressed. Widowhood was a very, very difficult experience, not only emotionally, but physically. There was nobody to take care of them. If they didn't have children especially, their husband is gone, they have no way of supporting themselves. They weren't recognized in any way by the society in which they lived as being able to function outside of the beneficiaries who made it so that they could still live in their homes and, and enjoy a meal every once in a while and be able to pay whatever bills they may have. They were at the mercy of those who would give them the help financially that they needed. Now, in the New Testament, we find several references to widows. And James tells us that taking care of widows is pure religion. Paul talks about the fact that we should be careful to take care of the widows who are widows indeed. In other words, they may be able to work for themselves. They may be young enough to attract another husband to take care of them. And, or they may have children. They're not necessarily in need like some of the other widows who are destitute, who have no way of, of providing for themselves. So Paul identifies and separates those two thoughts to emphasize the fact that we should focus in the church on taking care of those who are really in need. And so we tend to still do that, I hope, today. We take care of those who are in need. Peter talked about taking care of those who are in need, especially those who are in the body. And so we focus on those sorts of things in the church as we minister uh, in this particular area. We have some who are in great need and we do our best to find out what those needs might be and to try to help them in that situation so that they won't have to be living in despair. So the widows were needing to be taken care of. But the problem was those who were Greek-speaking Hebrews, the Hellenists, were being mistreated in their eyes. They saw that the Jews, the women, the widows who were residents of Israel, born in Israel, they call them the local Jews, they were getting better treated in the eyes of the Hellenist Jews. Whether or not it was true, we're not told. But that is the presentation of those who have been observing what's going on. And those who have been observing what's going on are Hellenist men and women who are taking note of what's going on in that distribution. They're saying, hey, 
She got much more than she did. She's a local Jew and she's a Hellenist. What's going on here? So it began to cause conflict in the church. It began to cause a disruption, a schism. And Paul tells us that, you know, in the body of Christ, we are to avoid such things. Let there be no schism in the body of Christ. Let there be no disagreements among us. It is not good for the church to exist with that kind of one side or the other mentality. That's how churches split. Churches do split, and we've seen it more than once. More than too often, churches have split over foolish things. Calvary Chapel is not exempt from church splits. There have been a couple in their history that have been disappointing. But God still continued to use those ministries as they move forward in the position that they had taken. One, for instance, was individuals who came to Chuck Smith when he was the minister in Costa Mesa, where he did not want to make any changes with regard to how we move as a Calvary Chapel movement with respect to the Holy Spirit. Well, the gifts of the Spirit were encouraged. But Chuck had taken a stand not to allow an overabundance of the spiritual things in the church. His focus was on the Word of God, and he believed, right or wrong, he believed that it was better to keep that to a minimum so that the Word of God could go forth. The others who said, no, we need to see the Spirit move, they might have been right. Chuck may have been right. But they couldn't come to an agreement And so they split. It wasn't an argument. Chuck just said, look, I I don't want to go in that direction. He had come out of a very Pentecostal ministry that he saw as being a bit of, not heretical, but off from the Word of God based on what they were doing. He did not want that to happen again in the ministry that he was involved with. It caused a split. And that split resulted in the beginning of the vineyard ministry. They're still a very, very well-known, and they grew tremendously, just like Calvary Chapel grew tremendously, but they grew separately. They probably could never have grown as much if they had remained together. So the result of that church split was growth. I submit to you that the result of this particular situation here in the first church years, perhaps the first two years of the ministry, not much more than that, I don't believe, but within that first short period of time, the church had been growing and there needed to be something done in order to continue to see the growth that they were already seeing. So this presents a problem. What do we do about this? The Hellenists aren't getting as much as they should, the others The ones who were born in the nation of Israel are being favored, and that causes a division. So in verse 2 it tells us, Then the twelve, the apostles, and by the way, here we have the number twelve. Remember that they had drawn lots to receive Matthias as a replacement for Judas to make up the twelfth individual among the apostles. Obviously, after this many months, 
He's still considered to be an apostle. Paul, the apostle, has not come on the scene yet. He's still Saul, the Pharisee. He's still against what's going on in the church at this time. So he's not one of the twelve that are described here. He's going to be appointed by the Lord Jesus as an apostle, but he's not one of the twelve apostles. He did not replace Judas. Matthias did. And he's among them in this setting. He says in verse 2 again, "...the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, "...it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren..." Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. The physical plant, the business of the church, the things that people see happening on a daily basis. It had to be done. But Peter here is the spokesman, and we're told that it's not desirable that those who are in the church leadership should leave what they're doing to serve tables. Now, that might sound a little bit above them. It's not a matter of that being something that they didn't want to do because they didn't want to dirty their hands. It was because they had a ministry that they knew God had called them to. And they needed to focus on that particular aspect of their ministry. That's why he says in verse 4, but we, the apostles, will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That was what God had called them to do. That's what God has called me to do. I'm devoted in the same way that they were to prayer and the ministry of the Word. I've got a beautifully written in calligraphy, that verse on my wall, written by a dear friend of ours many years ago. And I put it on my wall for a reason. I enter in my office and I see that every day when I enter into my office and I'm reminded that's my responsibility. I've committed myself to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And I do that daily knowing that that's what God has called me to do. He hasn't called everybody to that. There are many that He has called to do other things. Service for the Lord. In the management of the church property. Many years ago, when I was in another church, I wasn't in this pastoral position. I was a deacon. I was taking care of some things. I was taking care of the putting up and tearing down of tables and chairs. I was involved in many of those aspects of the the taking care of the business of the church. And I remember saying something to somebody once about the fact that I was such overwhelmingly blessed at being able to do that for the Lord. And he looked at me with a strange look on his face. He said, how can you be so happy about having to do so much work and effort? And I looked at him and I said, it's not an effort at all when God is in it. I believe that God has appointed me to this and I'm perfectly willing and happy to serve Him in this. And that's what needs to be done. There needs to be a people who are willing to step out and help where the help is needed. I've seen such things here in this place and I'm so very blessed. How else do you think that this building gets taken care of. It's because of people like yourselves who step up to the plate when the need is there and take 
every, make every effort to see that it is done and properly done. You see evidence of that just outside the door. Brand new steps and deck. It just didn't happen. But it happened because somebody took the time to step up to say, hey, I can do that. And I'm grateful for that. Well, here in that church in this first century, the solution is you need to find out among yourselves who it is that can do this work. You choose. The apostles don't want to be the ones who make that decision. They're turning it over to mostly the Hellenistic Jews, those who had first come to complain about the problem. He said, you can fix it. You appoint from among yourselves seven men. Now, we're not told why he chose seven, but seven's a good number. It's a perfect, perfect number of completion. Biblically, that's why perhaps they might have chosen that number. But he said, choose among yourselves seven men. But not just anybody. Take a look at the credentials. Take a look at the criteria that are required here in order for them to choose the men that they are appointing. It says, Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So you choose and we'll appoint them. It's simple. It's a good arrangement. That The solution is a very good solution to the problem. It doesn't involve them making the decision that those who complained would be later wanting to say, look, you guys didn't treat this properly. It was wisdom. It was good. But the requirements are very, very adequate for the task. It's not that the men themselves were adequate for the task, but their character was primarily what was needed to be observed in order for them to qualify for this simple task. They needed to be, again, men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit. Now, they all had received the Holy Spirit when they were born again. They were full of the Holy Spirit. And the emphasis of being full of the Holy Spirit is something that we see over and over and over again throughout the reading of the book of Acts. And we need to remember that that is such a very important aspect of who we are. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, someone has said, is not a title. It is instead a way of life. He fills us. He gives us that which we need. The Holy Spirit in us. We need to seek His filling. Paul tells us very explicitly, as I've said before, I'll repeat it again, the emphasis is on you being responsible to be filled. Be not drunk with wine, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. And the phrasing in the original language is a continuous keep being filled. Continual, on and on, over and over, day after day, night after night, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's an emphatic statement. It means you need to do this. I need to do this. It's not just a suggestion. It's a way of life. That was their first requirement. They must be full of the Holy Spirit. And that reputation that they have would follow their having been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, he says in verse 5, And the saying pleased the whole multitude. Good. They had a problem. 
We've got a resolution, and that resolution becomes the solution, and it is a perfect fit. Things are going to move on from here. Things are going to improve. Things are going to get far better. Now that they've settled it, the dispute no longer is a problem in the church. That's wonderful news. That's the way it should be. The saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen and listened to his credentials. A man full of faith. Now, in some translations it says grace. That's because different manuscripts have the different words, charis for grace and pisteo for faith. But it's the same thing. Basically, he's a man of faith and grace. And look, he's full of the Holy Spirit. Of course, that was required. So he's a man of faith and grace. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's a man of good reputation. And he's the first one listed. And he's going to play a part in the next chapter and beyond. He becomes the first martyr of the church. And we're going to read something that occurred with regard to Stephen that really affected the entire church in the coming weeks. But he's one of the seven. The second one, Philip. Philip also is a great man of God. And he's spoken of in other places in the Word of God. In chapter 21 of the book of Acts, he's referred to as Philip the Evangelist. Philip has four daughters who are prophetesses in the church. Philip is the one who was in Samaria when the Lord spoke to him and said, Philip, go down to Gaza and I'll show you what to do when you get there. And when Philip responded, he went down to that desert place, not knowing exactly what was going to take place. It's one of my favorite stories. Philip took a step of faith. In spite of the fact that all those miracles that were being performed through him and others in Samaria, and many of the Samaritans were coming to the Lord, it was a great work that had begun, and the Lord says, go down there in that desert place. Leave behind what you're so successful with, and go and do this work, because that's what I want you to do. And Philip didn't say, what? How can that be, Lord? Philip said, yes, Lord. And he went, took a step of faith, and he didn't know exactly where he was going or what was going to become of that command of God in his life. All he knew was God had said, therefore he did. And when he went down that area, he found himself in that desert place, and lo and behold, a caravan comes by. And there's a eunuch from Ethiopia in the seat of that caravan, reading of all things, Isaiah 53. Out loud, Philip hears what's being read. And he comes up to the caravan. He opens the window or the shade or whatever it was that was keeping the eunuch from the the, the harsh sunlight. And he said to the eunuch, Hey, do you know what you're reading? Or who it's about? And the eunuch said, How can I unless somebody teach me? And Philip says, I think I can help. All he was doing was just simply being willing to be used by God. There's a remarkable story. He brought the eunuch to faith in Jesus Christ. The eunuch said, Hey, look, there's water right there. What prevents me from being baptized? Isn't that amazing? The water happened to be right there by where they were talking. What a coincidence. You believe in coincidences? Uh-uh. That's a thing that God arranged. 
So it is with every one of us. We don't really have things that just happen by coincidence. God has a purpose in it all. Whether it's good or bad for us, in our eyes, it's always good in God's eyes because it tells us that all things work together for good to those who are, love God in, in Christ Jesus. The whole multitude said, here we are, we choose Stephen, and we choose Philip. And here are the other five names following Philip. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Now, Nicholas was an exception. An exceptional exception. He wasn't Jewish. He was a Gentile proselyte. As far back as Moses, when they began the temple worship or the worship in the tabernacle, it was recognized that those who had come from Egypt weren't all Jewish. There were many who were Gentiles who came out of Egypt with them. And they saw the power of God demonstrated in their lives and in the way that God had done so many miracles. And they wanted to have a way of participating in this worship of this God of the Jews. And so the provision was made by God through Moses to allow them to become what was then known as proselytes. They would become still Gentiles, but willing and able to enter into worship of the Jewish God. They had to be circumcised. They had to follow the traditions of the Jews. They had to do everything that was required of them, just like the Jews were required, and that made them acceptable among the Jews. And this is one of those who was already a proselyte of the Jewish faith, but now he's come to faith in Jesus Christ. Nicholas. That's the only thing we know about him. The other four, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenas, we know we don't hear from them or about them at all from this point on. But one thing we are certain of, each one of those seven names is a Greek name. I think that's significant. Now, it doesn't prove that they were the Hellenist Jews. There were many Jews, even in Israel, who took a Greek name as their second name, like Simon Peter. Simon's name in the Hebrew or Aramaic was Cephas. He was known by Simon or Simeon as a Jewish name that was given to him. Simon bar Jonah, son of Jonas. He was also known as Peter. Or Peter is a, an English transliteration of the Greek word Petra. So Peter had an Aramaic name, he had a Jewish name, and he had a Greek name. So there's no real way of knowing for certain whether these were all of the Hellenistic Jews. But the likelihood of that being the case is very real. As you read through the scripture, it was the Hellenist Jews who brought this problem before the apostles. Peter said to them, you choose among yourselves seven men. So it made good sense for them to choose seven Jews who were the Hellenistic variety of Jews to administer these things in this way. That way, everybody's happy. But they still had to be qualified. They still had to meet those prerequisites. They still had to meet those criteria. 
They needed to be men of good reputation. They needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The rest of this chapter focuses now on the first of those seven men, Stephen. It tells us a little bit more about his character in this portion of Scripture that we're about to enter into. But before we get to that, take a look at what they do in verse 6. When they set before the apostles, these seven men, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. There are some who emphasize the laying out of hands as being a very important aspect of the ministry. And it is. Some have taken the concept beyond what it was originally intended to do. It goes all the way back again to Moses. When Moses appointed Joshua to be the one who would take over after him, he prayed and laid hands on him. In the sacrificial system, they were instructed to lay hands on the sacrifice before it was killed. And the laying on of hands on the sacrifice was symbolic. It didn't accomplish anything in terms of the transfer of sin from the sinner to the sacrifice, but it was symbolic of that. And that's all that laying on of hands really amounts to. It basically is the way that we can physically demonstrate that we are agreeing with God in appointing this particular individual to this particular task by the laying on of hands, we then authorize or ordain what God has already authorized and ordained. A lot of people would argue, well, it's more than that. Laying out of hands is something that transfers something spiritually to that individual. I do not believe that that's the case. I think the only thing you can transfer when you're laying on of hands is perhaps some germs that may have been on your hands to the other person. Other than that, it is a symbolic thing. But they did that, and it was done in the early church. One of the things that the writer of Hebrews talks about is the fact that that's one of the sort of basic elements of the ministry is to lay on hands. James talks about the laying on of hands on those who are sick. And Peter emphasized that, also Paul. So it's not something that we should avoid, but it's not something that we should take as being something more than it ought to be. But anyway, that's what they did. They laid on their hands to these seven men in approval of what they had just appointed. Verse 7 says, Then the word of God spread, and a number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Remember I had mentioned that earlier. A great many of the priests. Now they're estimated to, at that time, have been around 8,000 Levites who were priests ministering in the temple. Now you know that they didn't all minister all at the same time. They were set up into various groups. Those groups were organized by David some thousand years before this. But that arrangement that David had made was still in place in Jesus' day. That's why you may remember Zacchaeus, Zacharias, rather, who was the father of John the Baptist. It was his time to go into the temple to offer incense. He was part of one of those groups 
And again, what a coincidence. He was appointed to go into the temple on the right day, at the right time, to offer incense, to receive the news from the angel, Gabriel, about the birth of his son. He was one of almost 8,000 men who could have been chosen for that task. Many of them came to the Lord. I'm convinced many of them saw that the temple had been changed on the day that Christ was risen from the dead. The curtain had been torn from top to bottom. I'm convinced that they were always, whenever Jesus was in that region, hearing the news of the miracles that He had performed. I'm convinced that many of them had had heard, heard Jesus speak. I'm convinced that many of them had heard Peter speaking in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. I'm convinced that all of the time that they were gathering in the temple, those priests were coming in and out, and they observed what was going on with the masses of people who were turning to the Lord. And as a result, they realized, this has to be God. And it was, and it is, and they believed and became believers in Jesus Christ. They were born again. They were obedient to the faith. I like that phrase, they were obedient to the faith. That means it's a responsibility for all of us who believe to obey God in whatever it is that He commands us to do. They were obedient to the faith. And then in verse 8, we tell it, we're told about Stephen again. It says, And Stephen, full of faith, again, maybe grace, full of faith or grace, or both, full of power, did great wonders and signs among the people. He's not an apostle. He's a servant. He's been appointed by the apostles to serve tables. But he does something far more than that. He's a faithful man of God. And God has called him to represent him. And in that calling, God shows his approval of this man by allowing great signs and wonders to be done by him. He's one of several examples in the New Testament where someone other than an apostle is performing miracles. It's not limited to the twelve. But he's full of faith and power, full of grace and power. He did great wonders among the people. But, as a result, remember the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin? They're observing him. They're seeing something going on. It says in verse 9, Then there arose some of what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, made up of Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Now these also were Hellenistic Jews, but they weren't followers of Jesus Christ. They were members of a synagogue in Jerusalem. There were hundreds of synagogues in the city of Jerusalem. This particular one is identified as a synagogue of the freedmen, or the libertarian, the libertines. Likely, it is one of the Gentile synagogues made up of 
Gentile Jews. Not really Gentiles, not really Jews. Kind of a mixed breed, if you will. But they were Jews who were Greek-speaking, who had accepted more of the Greek culture, and they were in Jerusalem, they had their own synagogue, and they saw what was going on in the temple and surrounding areas, perhaps from home to home, the word was spreading, this man Stephen is doing great and mighty things. They were offended by it. Instead of looking into it and saying, Wow, look what this is happening look at what's happening here. This must be God. Instead of that, they believe that there is trouble brewing with this man who seems to be doing all kinds of strange things for the people. They began disputing with Stephen. Some believe, and I'm not really sure that that's necessarily so, but some believe that Paul attended that very synagogue because Paul was from Tarsus, and Tarsus was a major city in Cilicia, which is one of the territories mentioned in this list of those who were from Cilicia and other areas attending this synagogue. Whether or not he was attending that synagogue, it's not certain. But eventually, Paul, whose name then was Saul, will be very much involved in Stephen's story. But for now, take note of the fact that they're all disputing with Stephen. Poor Stephen. All these very well-informed men from the synagogue in Jerusalem that was very, very popular, they must have had a great advantage over Stephen in terms of their knowledge of the Word, in terms of their being able to present the Word of truth, in terms of their being able to defend what they believed. Not so. Verse 10 says, And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. He's just a layman. He's just a servant. But yet he spoke with power, he spoke with wisdom, and they could not argue with him. They could not come up with a way to prove him wrong. That's because he had truth on his side. Jesus had said, Do not worry about what you shall say, but I will give you the words. And I believe Stephen knew what Jesus had said with that regard, and he had no reason to doubt that what he knew was truth, and he proclaimed it. And they could not defend themselves against him. Why? Because it's pretty obvious that he knew the Word of God as well. And he was able to defend what he believed by referring to the Word, just like Peter had done before in the sermons that Peter had spoken and were recorded for us in these earlier chapters. So, they couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't defend themselves. They couldn't argue with him and win the argument. The debate was over. Verse 11 says, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So if you can't beat them in a debate, bring false testimony, just like they did with Jesus. So they're now doing with Stephen. They can't beat them, so they're going to have to try to trick others into thinking that Stephen is a man who cannot be trusted. And the only way to do that is by having somebody give false witness, just again like they did with Jesus. And here's the argument. It says in verse 12, They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, And they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. So there's two arguments. He's speaking against the temple. 
He's speaking against the law of Moses. Blasphemy. This man must be stoned. That's the idea. They're presenting a case for penalty of death. That was the law of Moses. If anybody speaks in such a way as what they're arguing, then he's deserving of death. And they give their reason here in verse 14. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Those aren't true statements. Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. Jesus did say that the temple would be destroyed. And it was in 70 A.D. But beyond that, he was speaking of himself, not about the temple of God in Jerusalem. But Jesus did tell his disciples that the temple would be destroyed. And it may be that Stephen was made aware of that. And why wouldn't he share that truth? It came from Jesus' lips. It wasn't blasphemous. It was a prophetic statement. And as far as the customs which Moses delivered to them, he wasn't telling them that the law wasn't of any value. He was just telling them that Jesus had fulfilled the law. So they were only telling, at best, half-truths. But nonetheless, they were putting into the minds of the leaders of the people that this man, Stephen, is worthy of death because of blasphemy. It says in verse 15, And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. That should have taken each one of them to a point of saying, what is going on with this? I remember a long time ago when I was in the first church ministry that I was involved with. It was an Assembly of God church, a little tiny church in Brunswick, Maine. And we all loved the Lord. We were at a men's breakfast. We were sharing our love for God talking about the coming of the Lord, that He's perhaps coming soon. Believed it then, believe it now. We're talking about the imminency of His return. I was sitting across from an elderly man who I knew was Brother Bill. Brother Bill was always a, a really joyful person. Loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as I was sitting across the table from Brother Bill and hearing all the conversations about the hope that we all had in the coming of our Lord and the wonderful things that we were going to experience in glory, I looked at Brother Bill and I said, Bill, you're really longing for that day, aren't you? And he looked at me and he said, Oh, yes, I am. When he said those words, I saw his countenance change. I can't tell you that he had the face of an angel, but I can tell you this. He was certain, and it showed in his countenance. That's what is being said here about Stephen. It showed in his countenance. How many of us have had an experience where we're so filled with the Holy Spirit that it shows in our countenance? I end the story of Brother Bill with this last statement regarding him. He died that afternoon. He entered into glory on the very same day. What a blessing. What a memory for me. 
I want us to shine like that with whomever we speak. I want us to shine the light of Jesus Christ. I want us to be His faithful stewards in these last days to represent Him as His ambassadors, to be led by His Holy Spirit in our conversations with others, that our face would shine so brightly, our countenance would change before those with whom we speak, so that it would make a difference in their lives and cause them to wonder, what is going on with this one? How is this happening? And can it happen to me? And the answer to that question would be, yes. Yes, indeed it can, and it should, because it's available to all who would simply come by faith and believe in what Christ has done. Stephen believed. He was obedient to the faith. And though he was challenged by those who were perhaps more intelligent than he, more intellectual, more well-known and accepted among the people, the professionals of the day, the doctors and lawyers, what they were had nothing to do with that situation that they were facing. What he was had everything to do with it. God is so good that he would still use any of us in the same way. He wasn't an apostle. He was chosen among many brethren. Criteria? He was a man of good reputation. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a man of faith. He was a man of grace. And he was empowered by God to do that which he did and brought glory to the Lord and not to himself through it all. Chapter 7 is going to introduce us to his very lengthy message that he has before the Sanhedrin. We'll look at that the next time. I want to share these last thoughts with all of you, with regard to these seven men. Many people consider these seven men to be the first deacons of the church. The word deacon is used in the New Testament scriptures, but it is not used of these men here in this particular passage. They were indeed servants, and you will find the root word for deacon, which is in the Greek diakonos, in other forms. In the verb form, they served. The word serve is the word diakonai. They also saw that Peter and the other apostles ministered to the word. This word again is diakonos or diakonoi. The idea is a deacon is a servant. And so they put the two together and say that these men were the first deacons. This is, it's not that that's unbiblical, but it does give us a sense in, in the way that they approached this particular aspect of ministry. Paul will emphasize much more detail in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy with regard to deacons. He explains that there are qualities that deacons must have. 
And he goes through a list of those qualifications. Many of those which are in this list that we've just read are included, but more others as well are included. But I want to emphasize the fact that there are those who serve as deacons in the church today. And it's so very important that they understand, that we all understand, the level of value there is in those who are willing to serve as deacons in the church. But they must meet the qualifications. So Paul says, never to lay hands suddenly on any man. So we don't do that. We still lay hands on people when they're sick. We still lay hands on people for appointing in ministries. But we don't do it suddenly. We want to make sure that we're careful in our selection of those who are given responsibilities in the church. But the point of this all is this. Each one of us, men and women, if we meet the qualifications, and we should, we're eligible to serve. And God wants us to serve. So find out in your prayer time, in your study of God's Word, in your discussions with other believers, what can I do to serve? And God will open the doors for you to do that. I'm convinced of it. And then take a step of faith like Philip did. I don't know if this is right, but I'm going to go ahead and take that first step. Lord, are you still in this? Oh, I get to take another step. Lord, how am I doing? Is it, is it really still what I'm supposed to be doing? Well then, let's take another step. And continue taking a step, trusting in God that He is leading you, even though you may not see it, even though it not be manifested in any special way, know this, God wants you to take those steps. He wants every one of us to trust Him that the end result of our taking those little baby steps is great blessing. And I submit to you that that's what God desires for every one of us. Whatever it is, in whatever capacity you may be chosen to serve, if you are willing to go down that path, He'll show you. And you'll be blessed by it. So give thanks to God for His faithfulness. In Jesus' name.